In the United States, like many countries, middle-aged and older workers are increasingly a larger proportion of the workforce. The needs of these workers is different than those who are younger and can run the gamut from educational to health needs. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department. Our guests today are Taka Yamashita and Phyllis Cummins. Taka Yamashita is an associate professor of sociology and a faculty member in the gerontology PhD program and the Center for Aging Studies at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. He also has a secondary appointment in the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health in the School of Medicine and serves as an affiliate member of the Center for Research on Aging at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. His areas of research are social determinants of health and well-being over the life course, health literacy, wider benefits of lifelong learning, gerontology education, and social statistics education. Phyllis Cummins is a senior research scholar and adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Gerontology at the Scripps Gerontology Center at Miami University. Her research interests include work and retirement transitions, education and training for older workers, publicly sponsored employment and training programs, the role of community colleges in education and training for older adults, skill development over the life course and economic security in retirement. Taka and Phyllis, thank you both for joining us today. It is great to have you both here. So, so Phyllis and Taka, such a such a treat to have you join us today. I, you know, I, I guess I wanted to start with the, the 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 proverbial softball question. You know, this is the you know the one that anyone can answer. You know, that's, so how did you two start to working together? Well, Taka and I went through the same PhD program at Miami, doctoral program in social gerontology in the Department of Sociology and Gerontology. Taka was two years ahead of me, and he was actually my mentor. So we became friends with that, and right after I finished my PhD, I um, got funding for a commissioned paper to use data from the program for the inter- National Assessment of Adult Competencies, PIAC data. So I worked on this commission paper, and as it turned out, I learned that Taka had written an article using the predecessor survey, and Taka can, was at the IELTS, IALS, which is the same uh, PIAC measures literacy, numeracy, and problem-solving skills um, in adults. It's an international survey with OECD countries participating. So we were using U.S. data. So once I learned that Taka was quite familiar with those data, we jointly proposed another commission paper um, funded by the National Center for Education Statistics. So that sort of laid the groundwork for us to submit a grant application to the Institute for Education Sciences. So that began our collaboration. Uh, and that was, I guess we submitted that in 2017. And we got our funding on the first try, which is wow. quite unusual yeah, with IES. And we had really a very good score, and I attribute that to Taka <laughs> and because he is just such an excellent um, statistician that it was mixed methods. That project was mixed methods, and it, we used the PIAC data, and then the qualitative portion was we um, interviewed key informants in about a dozen countries 
about their policies and practices for lifelong learning programs, adult education programs in their countries to try and help inform policy in the U.S. So, and that, so, so can I just interrupt just for a sure. quick sec? Uh, so, so what was the, the research question this first funded project was, was exploring? So the, one of the uh, some of the things we worked on using the existing PIAC data is to describe the distribution of basic skills among adult population in the U.S. Believe it or not, we don't have too much data on what you know basic skills such as literacy and numeracy among adults how they are distributed. Um, data basic information from the PIAC study itself, mostly descriptive statistics of how many people have limited literacy skills in the US. It's estimated, depending on how you define limited literacy, some people say one in two, some other people say one in three, depending on how you want to define limited uh, literacy. But we went above and beyond that, uh, just descriptive. We decided to look at um, the differences across age groups, uh, different socio-demographic uh, characteristics. So our goal, one of the, our goal is to sort of develop a profile of skill distribution uh, among U.S. populations. And another thing, another sort of unique things we did is that we had a unique opportunity to use existing cross-sectional data um, to comp uh, look at age period cohort effect of uh, on uh, literacy skills. This is somewhat unique because there is no other data set that allowed us to do it. And even though this is not perfect, we are looking at three cross-sectional data. But there was an effort by U.S. Department of Education to make these three cross-sectional data comparable. So we were able to use the best method we know to get at age period cohort effect. Obviously, how we approached to this, initially what we proposed was fairly simple, but later we learned uh, more advanced techniques and we tried to apply that. And then we are totally aware of these limitations, but I think we made a good effort to get at some somewhat complex issues of age period cohort effect on uh, adult basic skills in the U.S. I, I have to, I mean, you, you said one and two or one and three with limited literacy, and that kind of, you know, caused me to just sit up immediately. That's That seems dramatically high. Uh, yeah. So, so I mean, uh, the natural question would be, what's, what's the implication of having such a high proportion of the population with limited literacy. You know, I, I think about that as, you know, with the stats and stories thing we do, right. we think about kind of consumption of news and, you know, but then there's also this implication of, you know, what about if you're, if you're dealing with medical treatment or medical interventions? So what, can you talk a little bit about some of these implications? Well, and I think we should also know that the U.S. scored not high as compared to other countries. I mean, we were near the bottom. Maybe there were three OECD countries lower than us. Do you remember exactly what that was, Taka? Uh, I don't ex know exactly uh, the, the exact ranking, but I think bottom five. Yeah. <laughs> oh my. It was uh, my recall. Yeah, it's, it's quite concerning. And it, actually, Taka did some, um, some analysis of uh, health literacy because there are measures of self-rated health. And I think that that low literacy scores were highly correlated with low self-rated health. Um, but just the ability to, and the, the PIAC data also measured numeracy and problem-solving skills, so just critical thinking skills. Um, and in when you're thinking of the need to have people um, 
be able to function in society, to meet the needs of employers mm-hmm. um, in technologies. Um, I think that's it's a concern. That was my going to be my question related to the issue of sort of the needs of an aging workforce. And I know that's that's some of what you've studied, but it seems like there would be there's a lot of discussion, right? When when people lose their jobs and their older workers, and say you can go through and get retrained for a new job, but I wonder what your research has shown about what that transition is like for these older workers, right? It seems like it's not as easy as showing up and getting retrained, probably. Probably not, and. A lot of um, older adults have a fear of going back to the classroom, Um, and some of it is because of um, poor educational experiences at younger ages and really fear of going back to the classroom. And a lot of our work has focused on community colleges, and community colleges tend to have students that are perhaps not as academically prepared as a Miami University. Um, and another project I'm involved in is looking at um, adult students at career and technical centers, which are um, some might consider a lower tier than even a community college. But we, our focus is really on disadvantaged groups more mm-hmm. so than because of the community college and our focus on the lower skilled populations, lower literacy, numeracy, problem-solving skills and those implications. Mm-hmm. But, you know, during the pandemic, I think one of the issues for older adults in the, the workforce and perhaps why they haven't gone back is a lot of them a lot of people stay in the workforce at older ages just for the social aspects of work, and they lost that during the pandemic, so they were feeling more isolated mm-hmm. and just the need to feel productive. Taka might have some, some thoughts on that whole issue, too, just based on the some of your analysis of the HRS data. So uh, before I get to that COVID-19 thing, I kind of wanted to add one more thing to your earlier topic. So one of the fundamental issues for the low literacy among adults, you know, we are both uh, social uh, gerontologists. So we always look at things from the life course perspective, from life to death. If you just look at what's happening now, we might be missing some sort of important life history or socio-historical context. So one of the things I wanted to point out is that having low adult literacy could impact your lifelong learning process. This is not just for workers or older adults, a specific segment of U.S. populations. Once you have the lower literacy skills, that's a fundamental skills to learn advanced uh, skills, you know, update knowledge, especially in the, you know, technology rich, uh, rapidly evolving societies. We need to constantly learn things. But once you are lacking the fundamental skills, you're going to have a hard time learning new things. So it is critical for us to develop solid foundational skills such as literacy and numeracy so that people can have uh, more equal opportunity to learn new things. And these fundamental skills, you know, based on our research and the existing literature, we know that it's linked to every aspect of our lives. You know, we talked about the health, 
but we, it's linked to uh, employment, it's linked to the civic participations, uh, it's linked to you know, what kind of social network you might have. So the, this fundamental skills is, I would have to argue that, as important as regular formal educational attainment nowadays. So that's, why, that's one of the major reasons why we are interested in these fundamental skills. You're listening to Stance and Stories, and today we're talking about the aging workforce with Takayamashita and Phyllis Cummins. I know, Taka, you were going to talk a little bit about the COVID-19 work, but I do want to backtrack really quickly because you mentioned the fact that you and Phyllis are interested sort of in, in the life course, right, in your research. And I wonder, because studies sort of have to be snapshots in time, right, how do you, when you approach your research, ensure that you're taking into account the full life course? That way you can kind of understand how, how things are where they are and what, what the implications might be down the road. Uh, that's a great question. So one of the sort of simple but important application of life, life course perspective is uh, exactly what we are doing. Because in the most of the uh, social science research in the U.S., we use formal educational attainment as a skill indicator, right? So among older adults, that happened like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. We still rely on that piece of information to estimate people's skill sets. So what these basic skills can tell us is more of an updated current uh, foundational skills. That's also a good indicator for advanced skills and the knowledge. Mm -hmm. So this is, uh, it, it might be difficult to see some of, uh, for some of you, but um, it is an application of life course perspective. That's an interesting perspective, this idea of, of what, what was achieved historically versus what you continue to, to work to, to kind of improve. I, I, you know, as, as you two were talking about this, I found myself thinking, okay, so, so what are some of the interventions you know, it seems like you, you could think about intervening at different points in time. I mean, at, at one level, from a life course perspective, it, it seems like early and often is an, is an answer about, you know, you want to you nurture kind of literacy, numeracy, and problem solving, you know, from the earliest times of someone's education or young life, but then also this continuing education throughout the life, life course. So, so how, do you, how do you kind of formalize a recommendation given the insights that you have from the work that you've done? Now, I like to use the Nordic countries as an example because they have created what I think of as a learning society. They emphasize for you know, a couple of hundred years, they have really focused on providing opportunities for their their citizens to participate in adult learning activities through their learning societies, learning circles, through their folk high schools. And the U.S. really hasn't done that in terms of sort of ingraining in people the need to continue to learn over their entire life course. And I think it's increasingly important just because of technological changes in the U.S. And it's not just work technology, it's technology in the home. Televisions have become very complicated. Your iWatch, your iPhone, is just to participate in society, you have to be some have some um, knowledge of technology. And there, in reality, there are a few jobs today that don't involve some technology, whether it's uh, logging in your work hours on the computer or looking at your work schedule on a computer. So I, I think that just the whole idea of providing opportunities throughout the life co course for affordable education. Yeah, I think what Phyllis described is sort of 
from the societal standpoint, you know, from the policy standpoint, what kind of things community and society can do to support lifelong learning. But what I would like to add is sort of changing the mindset or attitude toward uh, like learning across the life stages. You know, I usually just use this um, example of knowledge is like a muscle. So if you don't lose it, you lose it. So it's just like physical activities. You worked out 30 minutes yesterday. That's not enough. This is a lifelong process. We need to continue doing that to maintain what we have and also improve what we have. This is also consistent with one of uh, some of our work and the existing uh, sort of major paradigm of uh, adult literacy field. Uh, we call that a practice engagement theory. So how we engage in literacy or learning activity is linked to the proficiency or our knowledge and the skills. So use it, if you use it more, we can gain you know, the muscle or knowledge but if you don't use it, we lose it. So I think what we want to do through our research is to change that um, the public attitude toward learning. You know, we talked about the life course perspective and the sort of conventional life course model is education, work and retirement. But these, these are no longer outdated. You know, we need to change this three part life course model integrated across a birth to death. So we always learn, we always work, and we always engage in some type of leisure, right? So by changing this perspective, we can change, we believe that we can change attitude um, toward learning so that people can engage in learning throughout their lives. That's sort of simple, but I think that can solve uh, multiple issues that we are facing nowadays. I do want to go back since Phyllis mentioned it earlier, and I don't want to lose the thread about the the work you did around COVID. And maybe you guys could talk a little bit about what that research was and maybe what you found. So I think uh, our work uh, using the sort of nationally representative data from health and retirement study, uh, they did that sort of special module during the 2020 uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So our work actually doesn't tell us what exactly all the adults experienced compared to previous or, uh, you know, the updated data. But what we described was their immediate response to their uh, pandemic. And what we found was that actually most of the older adults are relatively satisfied with their lives uh, during the pandemic. But uh, what data told us is uh, they are more concerned about their own health, family's health and their future prospect, more uncertainty. Uh, we don't know exactly how their attitude or feelings toward their lives are different during the pandemic compared to other data points. But I think what we did is to sort of set the baseline data for the future research. Uh, so that's, that was our contribution. So what's what's going to be the follow-up to this? I mean, so you say if you're setting up this baseline, what are some of the, the research questions that are kind of burning in your mind right now in, in terms of following this? I think that would be interesting for us to know uh, if they experienced during the pandemic changed their behaviors or attitude toward their lives. But we can only examine that when newer data become available. We are also especially interested in if they change the way they uh, communicate with other people, the way they learn new things. Maybe, you know, because of the pandemic, they became more interested in online uh, learning environment. Uh, those are the kind of interesting questions I have. But um, what about you, Phyllis? 
I, I agree, and this is sort of a question for talk. Are, there, are they collecting new PIAC data now that might shed some light on that? Do you know uh, when yeah. the next round will be available? Right. I think PX uh, is an actually an ongoing data. So in the U.S., they first collected the data in 2012, and they did a follow-up in 2014. The second wave was 2017, and they are doing the new data collection in 2023. So the data won't be available until later 2024. But I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, this would capture the before and after pandemic. So I would be interested to see uh, how people's attitude or even basic skills or learning, uh, lifelong learning behaviors changed before and after pandemic. You know, I feel like there's been a fair amount of news stories about the concept of the aging workforce, um, not always with a lot of depth, but it feels like that's a story that comes back. And I wonder if given the work you do, if there's some story or something that you think we should be paying closer attention to or that journalists should be following more closely that you see is sort of coming up in the data that just no one's really picked up on yet. Well, it, maybe just by way of background, I got interested in the older older workers. My dissertation focused on that. I started the PhD program in Miami in 2009, and that was sort of the end of the Great Recession. And older workers were especially impacted, not so much in terms of unemployment rates, but of long-term unemployment. And many of them were forced to go back to school for retraining or a lot of manufacturing workers lost their jobs and there was no way they were able to duplicate their salaries for like a, someone working for GM or Ford um, that was a union worker and essentially used up their unemployment benefits. And then they became the long-term unemployed and people wondered, well, why haven't you been working? So I think just the the whole idea of older workers understanding the need to continually upgrade their skills, make themselves um, more marketable. Mm -hmm. Um, We interviewed, on another project, we interviewed older community college students, and there were a variety of reasons for them going back to school. Maybe they had a, a life change. A woman had been married and got divorced, so she had to reskill. Maybe the children had gone home. They were empty nesters, so they had the time to do it. Mm -hmm. Maybe their employer wanted them to go back to school in order to be promoted. There are lots of reasons. But I think because of worker shortages now in, in many areas, employers are, I think, more open to hiring older workers and also to because they can't always find someone with the skills that they need, that they seem to be more willing to provide the training for workers. Mm-hmm. I agree. That's a, that's a really important issue. And another thing I was thinking about is that um, just a general sort of like uh, adult education and the learning participation by age groups. So what data are telling us is that as we age and we are less likely to participate in any sort of adult education and the training and that has a great implication for the employment especially among older workers so data are clear that aging is negatively associated with participation in adult education and training and then we just learned that 
you know, engagement in skill use or, you know, any sort of, any form of learning uh, leading to updated skills and knowledge. And that leads to greater employment security and employment opportunities. But older adults are already at higher risk of um, unemployment and uh, uh, re-employment. But if they are not participating in uh, participating in uh, adult education and uh, training at this point, you know, the risk might become even higher. But I think, you know, most of the media may be picked on one particular issues and we were missing all these connections. So it might be important for us to think about how we can support all the populations in general and then particularly when they uh, lose job or when they are looking for new employment um, I think how we can support uh, those older adults when they are particularly vulnerable from the employment standpoint might be an important issue that we are missing. I think another benefit to um, adults of all ages participating in uh, educational activities is it's not just to upgrade their skills, but it's to show potential employers that they can learn new skills, that they um, just we've used signaling theory some in, in our work just because it signals to the employer that yes this person is trainable they were, they can learn new skills well that's all the time we have for this episode of stats and stories Taka and Phyllis thank you so much for joining us today stats and stories is a partnership between Miami University's departments of statistics and media journalism and film and the American Statistical Association you can follow us on Twitter at stats and stories Apple podcast or other places where you can find podcast if you'd like to share your thoughts on the program send your email to stats and stories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.